we're going to jump right in. Song of Solomon. This is a uh, collection of romantic poems, sort of a combination of dialogue and soliloquies, and it's all meant to hang together and eventually kind of tell a story of, of this uh, romance between King Solomon and the Shulamite woman. And there are also, there's a third voice, it's the voice of uh, their friends, uh, the people at the reception, there's going to be a wedding, um, there are a couple of dreams. Anyway, we really finally start to unpack it uh, tonight. Um, Solomon wrote this probably in 965 BC, his, his reign was from 971 to 930 and we looked, we did all the introductory work last week, which, by the way, is on the um, um, website, the podcast. Uh, and then we looked at the first seven verses. Let me just read those to get us started again tonight, and then we'll, we'll get into 2, 8 through uh, 3, 5. So it starts with the Shulamite woman speaking. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is, pour, uh, is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. And already, if you weren't with us last week, already you hear those first uh, three and a half verses and, and you say, okay, I'm not sure of some of these metaphors, some of these comparisons, some of these allusions. So listen, if you weren't here last week, listen to the uh, podcast and you'll start to see that. Uh, one of the things I mentioned last week is because this is poetry, the whole book is poetry, it's really meant to be read more than once. It's meant to be read several times, and, and the more you read it, the more is revealed to you. But also, um, to just to be able to study it and to, if you have a study Bible, read some of the commentary. That helps you with some of the comparisons and the metaphors. So she's not talking now. The, the uh, last half of verse 4, the others chime in now. We will exalt and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. And then she speaks again. And tonight we'll finally get to hear from him. I am very dark but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Uh, she's a foreign woman <clears throat> who lived in a context, a cultural context, where it was not a status symbol to have a tan. We live in a cultural context where it's a status symbol to have a tan. It wasn't for them. It was a reverse status symbol. Uh, she was looked upon as uh, poor and, and abused and oppressed because she had a tan. And yet, th the story we see is that in spite of that, she's absolutely beautiful. And verse 7, uh, tell me who my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon, for why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? So that's her saying to King Solomon, I'm ready to meet with you. Let's have a little rendezvous. But we're going to arrange this rendezvous in such a way that I'm not going to be walking around looking like I'm looking for some guy to pick up. I need to know exactly where you are. So tell me exactly where you are. So then we get into tonight. We're going to read through everything slowly. 
I'm going to make some commentary, make some application as we go. I'm going to get on both the men and the women tonight, so be prepared. Um, and, and I'll include myself in that as much as um, possible because I fit in with one of those categories. I'm, anyway, we'll find out. Um, uh, and then we'll close with a couple of takeaways at the end of the night. So uh, verses 8 through 10, uh, King Solomon finally speaks. If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, in other words, if you don't know where to go, here's where you need to go. He's answering her from verse 7. Follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tent. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. So verse 8 is his playful response to her request in verse 7. It is a very playful response. He's not telling her exactly. He's saying, look, you're going to have to kind of work at this a little bit. Um, and I would suggest that romantic love should have an element of playfulness, intrigue, and pursuit. Not always. It shouldn't be made difficult. It shouldn't be um, to the point where the lover feels mocked <clears throat> or made fun of. But there should be some playfulness. There's some measure of of fun in the pursuit. And by the way, I'm not just talking about when you're courting, I'm talking about after uh, everything's uh, put away and permanent. That it's even more important then to be doing those kinds of things. But then in verse 9, I mean, you read that, he called her a horse, right? That's what he does, okay? It's a great example of cultural differences. My guess is that this is not a compliment in our culture. Most women don't want to be compared to a horse. I'm just, I'm just guessing. Maybe you could tell me afterwards that I'm wrong if you want. Um, <clears throat> by the way, I'm sorry. I have to do this. I'm the king of dad jokes, corny jokes. Horse goes into a bar, orders a beer. Bartender gives it to him, kind of hanging around. Bartender finally looks at the horse and says, so tell me, why the long face? Okay, back to Solomon. So here's the deal. Solomon, are you going to be all right, Marcy? You look like, okay, yeah. That, that joke just about, that was almost it, right? Yeah, okay. All right. <laughs> so Solomon knows the Pharaoh really well. He, he, the Pharaoh's the king of Egypt. And, and he knows the Pharaoh's stuff as well, including Pharaoh's horses, which were magnificent, and horses in ancient Middle Eastern culture were a big, big deal. And in a team of horses, the mare is the leader, standing out and the envy of everyone watching. The mare represents grace, beauty, and nobility. So he's saying that this woman that he loves has grace, nobility, and beauty. It's a huge compliment. In verse 10, he's still on the mare thing. The mare, the, the main horse will also have decorations of jewels and ornaments to help that horse stand out as it's processing. And this woman, as we have seen, worked outside and likely did not have ornaments and jewels of her own. So there's two possible ways of looking at this. Number one, either it doesn't matter because her physical beauty, in spite of her, her darker skin, her being an outdoor worker, her physical beauty is like that of jewels and ornaments, or Solomon is telling her 
I'm going to buy you some jewels and ornaments. Don't worry. I'm going to take care of you. I've got enough money to do that. If you were here for Ecclesiastes, you know he's got enough money to buy her a, a thing or two to make her look nice. But it's beautiful poetry. And then verse 11, we have the, um, uh, the others chiming in again. Uh, we will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. So they're saying, and if Solomon doesn't do anything, we'll take care of you to the woman. Okay, so kind of a go team go. And then the woman speaks in response, verses 12 through 14. While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. So, you got to face it, these are some pretty risque and erotic verses right here, if you understand uh, the metaphors. <clears throat> so now they're hanging out in more of a semi-private place. Uh, I will just tell you experientially, when Jackie and I were at this early stage of our relationship 31 years ago, um, I longed to be able to have Jackie alone and all to myself. I just longed for that. Um, I, I, wanted, I, I wanted her undivided attention. That's how important, it, it sounds really selfish, but that's how important she was to me. I just wanted to be alone with her. Uh, she, for me, she's always felt right. She's always... Here, Maybe TMI, I'm glad she's not here tonight. She always smelled right to me. Just, I, she doesn't wear any cologne. I just like the way she smells, okay? Um, she, she, we, we fit right together. It just worked together. So we could be taking a walk or, or waiting for a movie to start or driving somewhere in a car. The only time I did not speed when I was driving was with, if Jackie was in the car with me because I didn't mind taking a long time getting somewhere because we were alone in the car. And I knew once we got somewhere, we wouldn't be alone anymore. And I just longed to be with her. So here you go. Her, her presence was a fragrance to me. It was like a fragrance to me. And, and that's what the Shulamite woman is saying about Solomon here. And she claims that Solomon is a pouch of myrrh lying between her breasts. Myrrh is an expensive, beautiful-smelling resin that's extracted from various trees. And, and the pouch lies between her breasts. Between her breasts is symbolic of the place closest to a person's soul. That's what it's talking about there. Their total being. She wants Solomon as close to her as possible. Again, this is about presence. In verse 14, the henna blossoms smell like a bouquet of roses. Scent plays a huge part of romantic love, if you, in case you didn't know that. It plays a huge part of romantic and physical uh, love. It, it's used to lure and attract. But here you go. Uh, think about how strong your memories are when it comes to scents and fragrances. It's the same thing. It's the same thing there. And the blossoms from Engedi, uh, Engedi is a very special and exclusive, wonderful island that everybody in that area knew and loved. Even if they'd never been there, it was like, ooh, Engedi. 
So it's like us with Coronado, probably. Everybody, even if you've never been to Coronado, you hear about it. Everybody wants to go to Coronado. Okay? And then he responds in verse 15. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. He's looking deep into her eyes. Eye contact is a characteristic of deep love and entry into another person's life. It, it, it's true. If you really love somebody, you, you like to gaze into each other's eyes. I, for some of us, maybe we don't remember those days. So here's what I'd like you to do. Turn to the person next... I'm kidding. Um, but it's, it's like looking deeply into somebody's eyes is, is inviting and giving entry into your life. It's a deep way of connecting. And he just says, you are beautiful over and over and over. He's just constantly saying how beautiful she is. Do you ever tire of hearing how beautiful you are, anybody? If you're a guy, do you ever tire of hearing how handsome you are? I'm guessing not. Okay? But he just kind of reminds me of Joe Cocker, you know? That song, You Are So Beautiful, You Are So Beautiful, You Are So Beautiful to Me. You're everything I hope for, you're everything I need. You are so beautiful, you are so beautiful. Joe Cocker was singing a form of the Song of Solomon. Okay, look, if you don't know who Joe Cocker is, you're going to have to look the guy up, okay? He pulls his hair when he sings, so it's kind of cool, all right? Now we go back to her, 116 to 21. Behold, uh, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. Our couch is green. The beams are, of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Sure. Yep, okay. Now, again, we need some context here. She returns the compliment. She says, you're beautiful, too. And adds that he's delightful. That Hebrew word delightful in other places in the Old Testament is translated lovely or pleasant. So it's a compliment. But then the last half of 16 and verse 17, again, we need some context here. She says, our couch is green, the beams in our house are cedar, and the rafters are pine. That just sounds odd, doesn't it? So, Paul, you're, you're having a romantic evening with Kelly and you say, you're beautiful. Our flat screen is 60 inches, our roof is shake, and our car is Ford. Like talking dirty now, right? <laughs> yeah. That's what it sounds like, though, right? Doesn't that, isn't that kind of what it sounds like? So, what, what happened here? Okay, so our, our couch is green means that they are laying outside in lush grass. They're, they're having a picnic. They're having a picnic. And, and surrounding the picnic are these magnificent trees, cedars and pines. So that's, that's, their, that's their house and their rafters. It's like in June going up to outside of Flagstaff in the forest out there and having a picnic out there and getting out of the heat here. Okay. And then, and then verse 2-1, let me reread that. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. This is what you might call parallelism in, in, uh, in poetry. Uh, the Valley of Sharon is one of the most beautiful places in Israel, and a rose from Sharon 
is simply the best. And it's not enough that, that it's a rose from Sharon. Uh, it's also a, a lily of the valleys, which means it's the best lily. But why does she say this about herself? This is interesting. She's saying this now about herself. She's not saying it about Solomon. She's saying this about herself. And I think if you think about it, and you think about romantic love and that wonderful floating through the meadows feeling that we've maybe had in the past or maybe still, I think you know why. When the right person shows you romantic love, something happens to your self-concept. You ever notice that? You, you, you can't believe that this is happening. And, 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 it, and it does something to who you are. You take notice. It, it, and it's not arrogant. It's not in a conceited way. But rather, you, you begin to find yourself worthy. And maybe you didn't think of yourself as worthy before. But somebody's taken an interest in you. It's somebody that you had hoped would take an interest in you. It's a wonderful feeling, knowing that someone admires you and finds you worthy. Uh, just let me mention that, consider, this is how Christ sees us. You understand that. This is how Jesus sees us. We're sinners, we're wrongdoers, we're below the bar, whatever that bar is. We don't measure up, and yet he finds us worthy. He finds us so worthy that he went to the cross for us. And Christians need to be realistic about their sin and their depravity. People are not basically good. We are basically sinners. But just as important, we need to very fully and on a daily basis be aware of our position in Christ, our status in Christ. We are beloved children. We are new creations, and we are ruthlessly, ruthlessly loved by God, because that's his character. He, he loves us. K Keller, I think Tim Keller says it, says it best. He says, we are way more sinful than we could ever imagine, and we are way more loved than we could ever understand, simultaneously. A lot of us think, okay, I'm a sinner, but I'm not that bad. We're worse than we think. Okay, I know God loves me. He loves you a lot more than just that. There's no way to even describe it. Just know that you're way more loved than you could ever understand. And verse 2, he concurs. As a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. Sorry, I'm really struggling with the air conditioning in here tonight. All right. As a lily is among the brambles, so is my love among the young women. He agrees with her assessment of herself, but he takes it up a notch. A lily among brambles does indeed stand out. Bramble, a bramble is the most undesirable shrub that you could ever have there. There's a picture of it. How many of you have decorated your front yard with these? You just don't do it. Okay, so yet now you have a lily in the midst of that. Okay, you ever had a white shirt or a white blouse on and you're having marinara sauce at Lamori and you spill the marinara sauce? Okay, that's, that's what it, the lily looks like 
among the brambles. There's such a, a tremendous contrast. And all the other women in the palace are thorns compared to her. That's what, that's what Solomon is saying. And by the way, some of you are like, wait, wait, what, the women in the palace, the women who work in the palace, who would like to be with Solomon, probably. But then the second half of that verse also, um, it does seem a little callous or harsh. He, he's merely elevating her in comparison to other women. And guys, let me tell you, we need to do this. We need to constantly be elevating our, our wife, our girlfriend, our romantic interest, if you have one, you got, you've got to constantly do this, not just when we're trying to get out of trouble. Okay? I'm not stupid, all right? You've you got to do it for no reason whatsoever other than to build her up. It's important. So, now we go from 2.3 to 3.5. The rest of it, it's all the woman speaking again. She, she, she dominates the rest of the night, and she speaks in three parts. She continues the poetry with verses 3 through 7. Then she relishes their love and actually quotes him in verses 8 through 17. And then the first five verses of chapter 3 are a dream or really more like a nightmare. And she recounts this nightmare that she has. And you've got to remember, wine and fruit are big, big deals in this culture. So there's a constant comparison to wine and fruit. Okay, It's kind of like, uh, in our culture, reality TV and the NFL, I think, is the only thing I could come up with that's as important as wine and fruit. Some of you are like, not really, but my goodness, the way people watch reality TV. I have a thing about that. All right, verses 3 through 7. As an apple tree... Among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. Um, anybody like apples? Okay. I, anybody like Honeycrisp apples? I mean, I can't, I, just, I can't get enough of those things. Uh, yeah, I mean, just like forget it. I can't eat any other apple anymore. So I just think of the Honeycrisp when, when she's saying this. Uh, with, delight, with great delight, I sat in his shadow. That's interesting. And his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Very interesting. Okay, so the first part of verse 3, in their, in their culture, an apple tree is actually very distinct from all the other trees. It stood out, and so that's why the apple tree is actually used there. It's not because it's honey crisp, it's, it's a standout tree. And then verse, the second half of verse 3 is really interesting for two reasons. First of all, she delighted to be in his shadow. She delighted to be in his shadow. In our culture, to be in someone's shadow, that's not usually a good thing. You realize that, right? It often means that somebody is holding us back or uh, keeping us from our destiny or overshadowing us. We don't get to be who we are. We're not getting all the credit that we deserve. But that's not true here. She desires to be in his shadow because it's about presence again. She wants to be with him. 
And, and we see that in the second item, which rolls into verse 4. Let me read the last part of 3 and, and into 4. Uh, With great delight I sit in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was, was love. His fruit was sweet to my taste is a common ancient Hebrew expression for great joy was given to me simply by the act of us being together. Great joy was given to me simply by the act of us being together. His presence with me is a delight to my senses. Smelling, hearing, seeing, touching, tasting, all the senses. And and he brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me is love. The banqueting house is a house of wine. Or metaphorically, because wine represents love in their context... It's a house of committed love. So he's, he brought me into this house of wine. She's saying, he's brought me into this house of committed love because wine and love are metaphors for each other. And the banner language is about how in, in their context, if you had a settlement, a, a group of people, or even an army, and they were somewhere, they always had a banner over them that proclaimed who they were and who they belonged to. So what she's saying is that she appreciates the fact that when she's with him, he has placed a banner of commitment over her and and has said, she's mine. I'm going to protect her. I'm going to preserve her. She is safe with me. She is a part of me. And I am all about her. That's what it means when she says, his banner over me is love. So, guys, again, how about it? I, I, I know women are strong, women are independent, women are capable, women are fine. But this is also what women want. You, you look at any study about what a woman wants in a romantic relationship, and one of the first or second emotional needs that she has is security. She needs to know that she is secure with you. And you need to give her that. You need to figure that out. You need to put your banner of love over her as well. The symbolism and vernacular may have changed over 3,000 3, years, but human nature has not changed. This is really important. And, and by the way, it, you can't just go, hey, I'll take care of you, and if I ever change my mind, I'll let you know. You've got to constantly be working this, constantly be nurturing this security. And she says, feed me apples and raisins because I'm sick with love. It's, a, it, it's, it's another way of saying I'm hungry for your presence. Your existence to me is like delicious fruit. Although I question the whole raisin thing. I'm not a raisin guy, okay? Yeah, a lot of you are like, yeah, okay. And, and then verse 6 is unashamedly about physical lovemaking and groping. It just is. One hand here and the other hand is, you know, kind of roaming around. Yeah, I just said that in church. All right, Balkan writes this. The unashamed physical frankness of this book should again be obvious to the reader. Okay? 
And then verse 7, consider what's being said in verse 7. Love is challenging. It is. Uh, genuine romantic love takes time and needs the right timing. It takes time and it needs the right timing. Um, this is Hebrew, but if it were Greek, uh, the Greek, the ancient Koine Greek has two words for time, chronos and kairos. Chronos is like chronological time. How much time have you invested, okay? It, it takes a lot of time. You have to invest a lot of time into, into a love relationship. But it's also about kairos, which is more like timing, how is your timing? Uh, kairos is actually a, a, an ancient Greek agricultural term for when the harvest was ready to be brought in. The time is right. It's, it, it, here's your opportunity. It's harvest time. So we got to invest time. And then, guys, the, the, we got to practice our timing, too. And you ladies need to practice that as well. And, and we're, never, we're not going to always get it right. It's, it'll, take some, it'll take some practice. But, but for the harvest of true romantic joy, there has to be, here you go, there has to be patience, prayerful consideration, investment, sacrifice, counsel, and some level of long-suffering. Can I get an amen from you on that? That's what genuine love is about. I know, I know the, fe I know the feeling. Oh, just that, that whole floating through the meadow with the hair blowing in your, uh, the air blowing in your, in your hair. Ah, uh, you know, oh, love. Okay. If you want that feeling to last, you got to work at it. You're going to have to put some stuff in there. And that's true about anything, of course, that's worthwhile. You got to invest. You got to sacrifice. You got to be patient. You're going to suffer a little bit, but it's very difficult for us. I know it's very difficult for us to accept this reality. It just is, especially today with instant gratification available in so many areas of our life. Uh, you know, how many of you have now been able to get something delivered from Amazon the same day you order it? Yeah. Okay, 20 years ago, you tell me that this is going to happen. I would have said, okay, you're, you got to quit the drugs, man, because you're just freaking out. All right. Okay, here you go. How about hookup sites? All you got to do now to be a stud is swipe right. That's all you got to do. How does he know that? Hey, you know, I watch YouTube videos. I get this figured out. Uh, we, we think somehow that faster is better, but it's not true. You got to wait for the proper time. Genuine love is often about patience and waiting. Now, here you go. I'm basically a, when it comes to, we do a ton of weddings here, a ton. We have a young demographic uh, congregation. Um, when I was at PVCC, about twice as many adults at that church, I was doing six to eight weddings a year. I came over here, half the number of adults I've been doing since I got here, 25 to 30 weddings a year and doing premarital for another five to ten couples on top of that who end up getting married in another city because that's where they're from just constantly okay and I will say generally I'm a short engagement guy once you've made that decision let's you know all right 
this three-year uh, three engagement thing, I, 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 don't, I don't really get it. I understand you may have your reasons, but I don't really get it. Once you've made that decision, let's get to it, all right? Can I get an amen on that? Yeah, all right. So, yet, yet, genuine love takes time, patience, and waiting. Are you willing to wait also? Okay? And then 2, 8 through 17. Let me read it. We'll come back and unpack it. The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes. Leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills, my beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. Anticipation is making me wait. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. It's springtime, love is in the air, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs, and the vines are in blossom, they give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away, my, my, oh my love, uh, oh my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face, let me hear your voice. For your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. My beloved is mine and I am his. He grazes among the lilies until the day breathes and the shadows flee. Turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag in the clift, uh, on cleft mountains. So verse 8, my lover, she's saying, my lover will do anything, go anywhere, and suffer any physical challenge to be with me. That's what my lover will do for me. That's what she's saying. Now, now let me say, again, certainly, guys, how you doing? How you doing on that? Will you do anything, go anywhere, and suffer any challenge for your beloved? A lot of you guys are looking down right now. I don't understand that. Okay? But, but, here you go. Here's the lady side of this. Okay? Ladies... If you're not willing to acknowledge the effort on the part of your man trying to do these things for you, if you're not willing to acknowledge the effort, don't be surprised if the effort stops. Been willing to go after the guys. So, ladies, frankly, here's where I think you need a lot of work. You just do. When he tries... Too often, women are too quick to criticize the effort. He's trying. Hey, he's an oaf. He's a clunky nerd, okay? But he's trying, and you're like, well, it wasn't just last night. He's not going to try anymore. That's it. He's done. Okay, babe. It's been real. He's done. So what if the execution wasn't just how you like it? So what? If that's your flinch to criticize the effort, you actually deserve what you won't get in the future. Some of you older couples are going, this is true. You younger couples need to listen to this. You need to hear this. I've been doing this for a long time. I know what I'm talking about. 
Here's the number one complaint from wives. 20 years of ministry, by far the number one complaint. He won't pursue me. Here's the number one complaint by husbands. By far, not even close. All she does is criticize. Number one complaint. If that's your flinch, you, you need to stop. But he sucks. I know he does. He's a guy. <laughs> At least compliment him on the effort occasionally. He might get better. He needs a lot of practice. He's not going to practice if he thinks you're going to just slam him every time. The Shulamite woman gets this, so take a cue from her. And then verse 9, more for ladies to learn. Ladies, your man is wasting away. He is. It's 2 Corinthians 4. Though the outer self is wasting away, gravity wins. We're all going to bag, sag, and drag. It's just a fact. Okay? He's wasting away. But if you start treating him like he's old and he's wasting away, it's only going to make matters worse. And I know this is hard. And I know it's fantasy. But he, honestly, would always like to think of himself as a gazelle, the most athletic and speedy of animals, and a young stag, the, the strongest and most impressive of, of the animals. Again, lady, ladies, you need to understand, you have a ton of input into your your man's self-concept, more than you know, more than you realize. I'm getting some nonverbal amens from some of the men right now. Very interesting. And then again, the last part of verse 9 is a reminder that there is a right time and a right place for everything, especially love. He's, he's waiting anxiously, but with commitment and patience for the right time for love to blossom. This is before the wedding, Okay. Uh, she needs to mature, so does he. It's a picture, it's kind of a picture of parents holding a young woman back until the right time. Um, I, I, again, and, and I, I'm talking about even in Christian elementary schools. This is not just public schools. This is in Christian elementary schools. The sexualization I see of 10-year-old girls, 11-year-old girls, 12-year-old girls, I can't believe it. And I, we're not doing anybody any favors with this. I don't understand it. Uh, the only thing I think I understand is that it's partially or fully about the parents more than it is about the kid. The, the parents see this as some sort of an image thing or, or cool. I don't get it. I, I really don't understand it. Uh, we have laws that restrict when people can drive, when they can hunt when they can serve in the military, and when they can serve alcohol. But potentially the deadliest of all things, sex and social media, we give this stuff to our kids as soon as we possibly can in our culture. What are we doing? I don't get it. And then verses 10 through 15, she just quotes him directly. And 11 through 13 are all about the idea of springtime being for lovers. And that's kind of familiar to us. We've heard all that before. You know, spring is in the air. But then look at verse 14. So 14. Oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face, let me hear your voice. Um, there's a sense in which a little intrigue or coyness is good for the love relationship. I've already mentioned something about this. A little intrigue, a little coyness. Don't play games. 
Uh, don't become one of those persons that gets known for just ripping people's hearts out because it's kind of fun to you. Don't do that. But a little intrigue is a little bit sexy. You know, a little covering here, a little misdirection there. Not bad. And then verse 15. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards. For our vineyards are in blossom. Uh, do you get this metaphor, this analogy here? Foxes are pests. They are enemies. They are obstacles. There are always going to be obstacles to your romantic love. Early, late, in the middle, throughout. There will always be obstacles to your romantic love. And, 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 and what they are saying, what these two here are saying, is that whatever the obstacle is, we're going to fight through it. We're committed to fighting through these obstacles. Our love is that important. What are some obstacles? Difficult family. And, and, and the difficulties of family when it comes to romantic, there are so many different ways that that can be manifest. And many of you know that. Financial challenges, health issues, just flat-out stupid people who think they have a right to talk into your relationship in ways that's unhelpful, junk with your job. Uh, some of the most challenging times Jackie and I have had in our relationship has been when our jobs or one of our jobs is not going well. We've had pretty good with the family. I counsel a lot of people that don't, uh, don't have, that family's a mess. And, and they're, they're determined to make a mess of this romantic relationship, too, for whatever reason. We've never had to experience that. But the job stuff, stupid people, yes. So whatever it is, I, I talk about this a lot. You maybe have heard me. Marriage is back-to-back side-by-side and face-to-face, -face, right? You, you heard me? Okay, so this is the back-to-back -back part. Um, are, are you going to stand up for each other? Are you going to cover each other? Are you going to protect each other? It's a, it's a military orientation. Are you going to advocate for each other? Are you going to encourage each other? Do you have each other's back? The side-by-side -side is the fact that um, a romantic love relationship also has to be, there has to be an element of of strong friendship and partnership, both friendship and partnership. They're similar, but they're different. And then face-to-face -face is the intimacy, the intimate part of your relationship, which is certainly physical, but it's more than that. It's also the emotional and spiritual intimacy that you share. The face-to-face -face is the stuff that you share with your partner, and that's it. Nobody else. Physical, emotional, and spiritual stuff. Okay? But this is the back-to-back -back part that we're talking about here. When the trouble comes, we, we know we can count on each other. We have each other's backs. And she ends this part with verses 16 and 17, which have important implications for sure. First of all is the fact of mutual ownership. Yeah, I use the word ownership. The mutual ownership in biblical romantic love. Let me read for you Genesis 2, 24 and 25. God has finally created the, uh, in the Greek it's the ezer konegdo, the complementary partner for the man. And he brings 
He brings her, and the man says, oh my goodness. And he just breaks out into poetry, impromptu poetry. And then after that's done, there's a commentary from God. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That hold fast to his wife um, uh, in the Hebrew means to be literally knit together as one. You are now one. You're one flesh. You're knit together. Okay? Paul picks this up. By the way, Jesus does in Matthew uh, chapter 19 as well. But Paul picks it up in Ephesians. He says this. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. And, and you got to know, Paul, who is an expert in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, he's got Genesis 2 in the back of his mind, and then he just quotes it. He says, for, therefore... A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, be knit together with her, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church, which is true, but also to husband and wife. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let her wife see that she respects her husband. There's mutual ownership there. One more place that demonstrates this mutual ownership. In case you haven't gotten this, 1 Corinthians 7. I don't think we teach this enough in church. Now concerning the matters which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So he says, if you're a single guy, you shouldn't be having sex. But because we can't control ourselves, we should get a wife. I know, it's good. That's what Schrader used to teach this. He's backed off of this position, but he used to teach that the primary reason to get married was to have sex. <laughs> He's backed off. He says it's one of the primary reasons now. Okay? But he based it on this. Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. This was absolutely revolutionary in the first century. That Paul would say that a woman has rights and that a woman in marriage has... This is... In, in Corinth, their jaws hit the floor when they read that. What are you talking about, Paul? That's a slippery slope, Paul. <laughs> and likewise, the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except by agreement for a limited time that you devote, may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. You belong to each other. You have ownership in each other once this marriage takes place. Second of all, these verses remind us of this truth. When we are in love, our, our desire is one that uh, is is that the one we love would turn toward us and not away from us, right? You, you, you're starting to fall in love with somebody at the office, at church, at school, at the neighborhood, wherever it is, happy hour, wherever it is. Your desire is that they would turn toward you, right? You don't want them to turn away from you. 
Why won't they ever look at me? Why won't they turn toward me? You want them to turn toward you. It's a simple thing, but it means everything. And again, think of Christ. He is constantly turning himself toward us because he loves us that much. He's the master of turning toward us. So then verses three through five, uh, 1 through 5 in, in chapter 3, this is her dream. Really, it's kind of a nightmare. On my bed at night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him but found him not. I will rise now and go about, go about the city in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. Understand, they're not married yet. They haven't had the wedding yet. I sought him but found him not. The watchmen found me as they went about the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house, into the chamber of her who conceived me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Have you noticed that our dreams are often driven by our fears? You ever notice that? Probably most often driven by our fears. And one of the greatest fears we have is that the one that we love will leave us or will find somebody else or will be taken away. We all have those dreams. and They're common dreams. They're so common that uh, a couple of stand-up comedians, both Brian Regan and Jim Gaffigan, have worked into their uh, material at one time or another. You guys know Jim Gaffigan, Brian Regan? Okay, at one time or another, they've each worked into their material the fact that they're asleep with their wife, their wife has a dream that they had an affair, so she wakes up and hits him while he's sleeping. And, of course, that wakes him up, and he says, what? What was that for? And she said, well, I had a dream that you left me for another woman. So I hit you. It was a dream, right? It didn't really happen, right? Yeah, I'll hit you anyway. doesn't matter. Now you know not to do it, okay? So anyway, here she is having a dream that is either centered on her continued desire to just be with him all the time, or it's a nightmare about him being gone. It's a dream or a nightmare. She desires to be with him, or she's really upset that he's gone. He's nowhere to be found. And verse 1 says, I sought him whom my soul loves. And what, it, what she's saying is that everything in me, everything that I am, every part of who I am loves him. Yeah, I even love his stinky t-shirts. And verse 4, isn't it interesting when she found him, what did she do when she found him? She took him to her mother's house. <laughs> now look, guys, that really, that's not, that's not our favorite place to go, right? The, the parents of the girl were courting, the woman were courting, that's not our favorite thing. Now, Costan George Costanza liked it. He always did better with the mothers than he did with his girlfriends, right? You've seen the uh, uh, Seinfeld episodes, all right? 
Um, they always thought he was wonderful, but, and his girlfriends would break up with him because he's not. Um, but most of us don't like this. Is this prescriptive? Is this like what's supposed to happen? Not necessarily. But what does her mother's house represent to her? Security, love, stability, and commitment. In that regard, this is prescriptive. She desires security, love, stability, affection, intimacy, commitment. And then verse 5 again, be patient, be patient. A couple things to take away from here. Both of them are going to come from chapter 2, verse 9. So look at the first half of verse 9. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. She's talking about how wonderful he is. Um, Again, I cannot express how important this is for guys to hear, not just during the courting phase and not just early in in the marriage, but even when it really isn't true anymore. Um, there's a, I think this is a really touching clip of a movie, an older movie. Um, some of you have maybe seen it. It's on Golden Pond. And it's Henry Fonda and Catherine Hepburn. They're married. And they're at their cabin, out, you know, their, their little second home. They love this cabin. And uh, Henry Fonda's character as he's been doing for decades, went out to pick berries, and he got confused. He, he, he totally, he goes to the end of the driveway or whatever, and he's lost. He doesn't know where he is, and he panics. And he somehow makes it back. There's a little exchange with the mailman, Charlie, that they've known for years, and he's mean to Charlie, and she's kind of wondering what's going on, and this is, this is what it's about. You want to know why I came back so fast? I got the end of our lane. I couldn't remember where the old town road was. One little way in the woods, there was nothing familiar, not one damn tree. Scared me half to death. That's why I came running back here to you. See your pretty face. I could feel safe. I was still me. silly strawberries. We'll take ourselves to the old town road. We've been there a thousand times, darling. A thousand. And you'll remember it all. Listen to me, mister. You're my knight in shining armor. Don't you forget it. You're gonna get back on that horse. And I'm going to be right behind you, holding on tight. And away we go. Oh, 
I don't like horses. You are a pretty old dame, aren't you? Oh. What are you doing with a daddy or something that's like me? Well, I haven't the vaguest idea. <laughs> Still struggle to watch that without crying. It's just, it, it, you know, she says to him, "You're my knight in shining armor." You know, we never get tired of hearing that. We really don't get tired of hearing that. And and let me tell you something. I know we're not knights, and I know our armor is pretty dull, and it's getting duller. But we still. We still like to hear that. But I'll tell you, it goes both ways. She likes to hear it too. We're going to be doing Proverbs um, these next seven weeks. And one of the passages that Luke picked is actually Proverbs 5. So you're going to get a lot of this over the next few weeks. Um, We'll get it started here. This is Solomon talking to his son in Proverbs, and I want you to get the metaphors here, and this is pretty direct. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Now, let me ask you this question. Uh, did Solomon's son just work out, and he, and he needs a, a bottle of water? Is that what, what's going on here? Is that what he's talking about? Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Should you be out looking for loose women? Nope. Let them be for yourself alone and not strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. I'm going to come back and talk about those couple of verses in a second. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the Lord, and he ponders all of his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of sin. He dies for a lack of discipline because of his great folly has led him astray. Rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always with her love. You understand, the gospel can do this for us. Um, Jackie and I have been married 30 years. And each of us separately look in the mirror now today. And both of us, when we look in the mirror... um, we, we, we're not excited about what we see in ourselves. And both of us wonder how. How is it possible that we're still interested in each other? And I will tell you that I could go into this for a couple of hours. I don't have time to do it tonight. But that's what a gospel-centered marriage does for people. Because you're starting to... Uh, as, as Paul says, uh, have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. 
that you're being conformed to the image of God's son and you're seeing things through his perspective, not a worldly perspective anymore. Um, I look at Jackie and I don't see a single flaw. Does she have flaws? It's okay. Yeah, she does. I don't see them. I, I think she's more beautiful and more perfect today than the day I married her. And let me tell you something. She was hot when I married her. She's hot now. I don't mind saying that. Some of you are like getting really squirmy right now. L let me tell you this. You want to be squirmy. Let me tell you this. I was 26 when I first met Jackie. We started dating and got married when I was 27, 28. I was 28 when we got married. I know exactly how old I was when I got married, okay? Just kind of giving you a timeline there. Uh, and I wasn't a Christian before that. And I, and I, and I you know, I'd, I'd lived the life. And, and I dated a lot of women, a lot of really beautiful women. And I will tell you that that, that was the goal, the, the trophy, the most beautiful. And it was interesting it's interesting to look at this retrospectively now. No matter how beautiful the woman, no matter what, before I knew Jesus, no matter what, I always got tired of the way the woman looked. Within a few months, she became familiar, old hat, whatever. She just did. Jackie is the only woman I've ever known romantically since I've been a Christian. And I have never, ever grown tired of how she looks. Never. She looks more and more beautiful to me every day. I tell her this, by the way, all the time. You look so much better every day that I can't wait for next week. Oh, Frank. But it's the truth. I, it, it, it is the gospel lens. That's what it can do for you. It, it, and think of it, it's the way Jesus sees us. Aren't we flawed? And yet that's exactly the way he sees us too. That's what, it, that's what the gospel can do. And, and that's what Solomon's talking about here. He says, rejoice in the wife of your youth. Let her breasts always bring you delight. In other words, 40 years from now, this is where you're going to find your delight. And oh, by the way, there's going to be an intimacy and a trust and a familiarity that's going to be way better than now. Way better than now. Which I, you know, I'm standing at the altar with Jackie and I don't think that's possible. That's a fantasy. That's a pipe dream. But it's true. It's true. There, there, there's a level of intimacy and love now that I never thought I could have with anybody. And it's not me. It's Christ. It's Christ. And then verse, the second half of that verse, it's here somewhere. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. This is, again, about patient, expectant waiting. Here, one, one author says it's called faithful waiting. I like that term, faithful waiting. 
a, a screenwriter in Hollywood, very good screenwriter in Hollywood, Andrew Stanton. He wrote uh, Nemo, Toy Story. He wrote the screenplays for all of these, okay? Um, he says that good drama is anticipation mixed with uncertainty. <laughs> That's kind of good romance, too, I think. Anticipation mixed with uncertainty. Uh, but also the ability, the ability that time has to make us more mature. Romantic love takes time. We, we want to rush into it because of the feelings, but, but it takes time. It takes faithful obedience over time. And that's what she is saying here about her and Solomon. Okay? Um, again, 30 years with Jack. I'm just speaking autobiographically because that's what I know the best. Um, I've been 30 years with Jackie. Let me tell you something. I wish I knew 30 years ago when we got married what I know now about genuine romantic, biblical romantic love, and about the gospel. I wish I had that 30 years, 30 years ago. I, let me tell you something, I'm 58 now, I would be one great young husband right now. <laughs> I, I'd be unbelievable. But I really couldn't back then. I'm still young, I don't understand, I want things fast. But the experience that marriage can give you and that the gospel can give you, it, it can get better. We, we are not finished products. That's what the culture says we are, and that's how we're supposed to present ourselves in culture. We are works in progress. Paul says in Philippians, I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. In Romans chapter 8, he says we are being conformed to the image of God's Son, to Jesus. We are being conformed. And in that respect, marriage can get better. Romantic love can get better and stronger. It can be like Catherine Hepburn and Henry Fonda in that scene. It can be like that. And I want to redeem all those years when I was not as attentive, not as obedient, not as patient, not as loving, and not as persevering as I should have been. I want to I want to redeem all those years, and, and, and I still know I have, I still have a lot to learn right now. I still have a lot to learn, but it is so much better now. Familiar, you heard this saying, familiarity breeds contempt. You've heard that, right? You know what? In a gospel context, familiarity breeds intimacy, and the type of intimacy that, that, that Adam and Eve screwed up for us in Genesis 3, that intimacy that they had in Genesis 2, 24 and 25. Man will leave his mother and father, be knit together, and the two shall become one flesh. And then what does 25 say? And the two of them were together in the garden, they were naked and they were not ashamed. That, that, that idea of, of naked and not ashamed is certainly physical, but it's way more than physical. This is about a level of intimacy, trust, vulnerability, authenticity that our hearts pine for. That, that, that uh, Solomon in, in chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes says, God has put that in our hearts. We know it's there. We just, we can't find it. We can't get it. This is what the gospel does for us, though. It begins to build that back into us, and it gives us a foretaste of that intimacy that was in the Garden of Eden before the fall and that we're going to have again in the new Jerusalem. 
That's the kind of intimacy we're going to have. An intimacy that is not sullied by sin or distrust or corruption or tears. In Keller's book, best book on marriage I've ever read other than scripture, uh, The Meaning of Marriage. In chapter 5, chapter 5 is titled, Learning to Love the Stranger You Married. Learning to love the stranger you married. You're marrying a stranger. Those of you that have been married for several decades, you know, uh, Keller cites the, the longitudinal research. He says, in, in the course of a 50-year fi- marriage, you will be married to five different people in the course of that marriage. They're all going to have the same name, but they're going to be different people. And oh, by the way, that first five years, you're going to be sitting there going, what? This is not the person I married. I thought I knew you. And you're going to have to learn how to love them over and over and over and over. And then they're going to change. You're going to have to learn how to love that stranger. But that's what the gospel does for us. And it means we need grace and faith and patience and obedience. And we need a bucket full of forgiveness. We need to forgive as Christ has forgiven us. And sometimes we have to wait for what we want. Reminds me of us sitting around waiting for the second coming. Well, next week we're going to do 3-6 through 6-3. The wedding. Get to have the wedding. The processional, the celebration, and everything that goes with that. All right? Let me pray. We'll see you next week. Well, I'll see you Sunday, too. Starting Proverbs Sunday. Lord God, thank you for uh, this magnificent poem and story. And I just pray that, God, that you would be the center of our lives and that we would look to the gospel for our salvation and our sanctification. We just want more of you, Jesus. So show us more of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.